When I lived in Abilene, Texas, there was only one Starbucks in town. My friends and I frequented it. Uh, we used to meet there on Friday mornings uh, and just kind of chat. We'd meet early in the morning, grab that necessary cup of coffee, and then just take some time to catch up one at a time. Uh, we'd go around and, and then after a while, uh, folks would head off to work or class or whatever else they had planned for the day. And, but I'll never forget this one time arriving at that Starbucks just in time for one of the baristas to begin leading a special coffee tasting session. I hadn't known uh, that it was happening, uh, but showed up there, day was pretty free, and, and so I decided to join in. And in this coffee tasting session, the, the barista demonstrated the proper way to make coffee with a French press so as to extract the most flavor. And, and while the coffee was brewing, he went on to explain to the small crowd that had gathered a few different kinds of coffee, uh, their origins, the way they were roasted, and, and all of these things. And he, as he explained them, he described some of them as, as having more of a nutty and chocolatey kind of taste, but others as, as being a little bit sweeter and, and having sort of a fruity taste almost, which most wouldn't ever expect from coffee, right? And then finally came the time to actually taste that coffee that he had just demonstrated and explained so much. And so he poured these little tiny cups for us and led us through the actual process of tasting the coffee. And there was a process, right, to really taste the coffee. You don't just drink it down and say, yep, that's coffee, right? It starts with holding the coffee under your nose and smelling it. You know, and then you finally bring the cup to your mouth, but even then you don't drink it down yet. He instructed us to bring the coffee to our lips, but we weren't to gulp it down or even sip it, but rather we were to slurp at the coffee. All right. And then he demonstrated it with his own loud slurping sound from his cup. Right. Uh, and, and, and he explained that slurping aerates the coffee and brings out some of these more subtle flavors that, that he'd been talking about. And so that small coffee tasting crowd that had gathered in the corner of that little Starbucks all took our little cups to our mouths and started slurping away. Uh, and, and lo and behold, I, I actually could taste some of those flavors that he had talked about. Right? It was, it was incredible. And, and after doing this with one of the coffees, we all rinsed our mouths with some water to cleanse the palate. And then we repeated the process again with another kind of coffee, which amazingly tasted much different from the other uh, that we had tried. It was just like he had described. Now, now this whole experience of coffee tasting, it was fun and, and it was tasty, but, but I think it demonstrates a couple of things about our sense of taste. All right. So first, really experiencing our sense of taste actually takes some time. I enjoy the taste of coffee, but most of the time, I don't usually pause to, to sniff and slurp it, right? Most often it's early and I'm still waking up and, and I just want some coffee, right? I mean, any, any of you have that experience, but, but to really experience the taste requires slowing down. It requires sipping rather than gulping it down. 
uh, chewing rather than inhaling our food, right? Slowing down to really taste this coffee is great. It was, it was a great experience. And, and it's something I had been missing out on previously whenever I would drink coffee and just guzzle it down. The second thing that taste does uh, and, and that you can see in, in this little experience is that taste tends to create connection and community. You see, this coffee tasting experience brought together a small band of strangers to circle around in a corner of Starbucks and noisily slurp their tiny cups of coffee together, right? Now, just think about how silly and ridiculous that whole scene is. And anyone looking on to that little crowd in the corner might think that we'd all gone mad. But within that circle... It was this great shared experience of tasting coffee together. And food, our sense of taste, is so often at the center of special communal connections. Right? Think about the taste of cake and ice cream. Right? I mean, just immediately you're transported to a birthday celebration, aren't you? Or then... Perhaps there's the taste of champagne as we toast a newly married couple or perhaps head into the beginning of a new year. There's the taste of turkey and stuffing. And as you imagine that, you're immediately transported to the table at Thanksgiving. Or we all have those special family dishes, right? For me, it's my mom's breakfast casserole. That brings me straight to Christmas morning. What's that dish for you? That dish of community and connection. You see, taste is a communal sense. But it is also a very personal sense. I mean, just think about it. Sight, sound, and smell can all be experienced from a distance. And even touch, though it's closer, is still primarily experienced outside of your body. But in order to taste something, you have to bring it into your mouth. And unlike any of the other senses, when we taste something, it enters us and truly becomes a part of us. So taste takes time it creates community, and it has this ability to transform us on a very personal level. These are some of the themes that I want to explore today as we continue this series on senses and spirituality. Now, there are a ton of places we could begin in Scripture, and we've already read about taste in one of the Psalms, right? We began there. But, but what I want to begin with during this time is the question, what role did taste play in Jesus' life and ministry? Because I think of all the five senses, taste seems to proliferate the most throughout the Gospels. Last week, we saw that touch was important in Jesus' ministry. And in the coming weeks, we'll consider sight, sound, and scent. But taste is the sense that is described most often in the life of Jesus. And we see this as true from the reputation 
that Jesus began to have among his friends and among his enemies. So open up your Bible to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 31. All right, Luke 7, 31. This is in the midst of a scene where folks are asking questions about Jesus' ministry and John the baptizer's ministry, both of whom uh, the Pharisees had rejected. All right, and in these verses, Jesus addresses some of the controversy around their ministries, and we'll also get a glimpse here of what kind of reputation Jesus was starting to have. Okay, so let's read together Luke 31. Uh, sorry, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. All right, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus speaks, To what then will I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you. And you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Nevertheless, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of our sense of taste. I ask that as we consider the words of your scripture, that we would taste and see that you are good. As we consider these words and the life and ministry of Jesus, May you sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So at the beginning of our passage, right, that we just read, Jesus compares the Pharisees to these stubborn children in the marketplace. When a happy song was played, they wouldn't dance. And when sad cries were made, they would not weep. And he then explains what he means by this, by describing their reactions to the ministries of John the baptizer and his own ministry. You see, John came eating locust and honey in the desert. And they said, well, he must have a demon, right? He must be crazy. But Jesus came feasting with people in the cities. And they accused him of being a glutton and a drunk. You see, no matter what, they will find a reason to reject the teachers that they want to reject. All right. We often do the same thing ourselves. Now, now we know that John did not have a demon. Rather, Luke describes him as being filled with the spirit from birth. You see, he went out into the desert to be a voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. And similarly, we know that Jesus was not a glutton or a drunkard because he was perfect and without sin. But why would they accuse him of that? Well, 
they accused him of this because he did spend a good bit of time around food and around drink. Think of his miracles, right? Last week, we saw that many of his miracles involved the sense of touch. Well, he also had many miracles that involved the sense of taste. One of his first, when he called the disciples, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, was a miraculous catch of fish where they were overwhelmed with so many fish that their nets started breaking and they ended up filling up two whole boats full of fish. Another of his miracles also involved some fish as well as some loaves of bread, right? And he miraculously fed a crowd of 5,000 people, possibly more. And this is the only miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 that is recorded in all four gospels, all right? This is a core part of Jesus' ministry. And, and so in this story, after the crowd had eaten their fill, there were still 12 baskets of food left over, right? So both of these miracles, the miraculous catch of fish and the miraculous feeding of 5,000, both of these show abundant food. And they show us that Jesus' approach to taste is not merely utilitarian, right? People do not merely eat to survive. People are meant to eat to enjoy, they eat to experience the sense of taste. And this is even more clearly seen in another of Jesus' miracles, when he turns water to wine, right? He is at this wedding feast, and they run out of wine for the celebration. But at his mother's request, Jesus miraculously turns the water from six large jars into wine to provide for the rest of the feast. And this would be amazing all by itself, but the story doesn't end there, does it? Right? Once the chief steward in charge of the feast tastes the wine, he calls out to the bridegroom to point out just how good this wine is. You see, most of the time, the best wine was served first, and then the cheaper stuff would be brought out after people had already been drinking for a while. But the wine that Jesus made wasn't just acceptable wine. It was good wine. It was better, even, than the good wine that they had started with earlier. You see, in this story, the chief steward becomes a little bit like that barista, as he begins calling out, it's as if the chief steward is telling everyone, hey, slow down. Take a moment to really taste this wine, this good wine. And the key word here is savor. You see, Jesus' approach to food is not merely utilitarian. The food he offers is abundant. And the food he offers is rich. It is meant to be savored. And in order to savor something, we must slow down. As we consider the sense of taste and the ministry of Jesus and in our own spiritual life, I think there's a call here for us to slow down a little bit. 
You know, maybe that is actually slowing down to really taste and savor your cup of coffee or tea or whatever meal you're sitting down for. But it could also look like simply slowing down to savor the reality of each moment. Rather than rushing through life by staying busy or numbing out to life in front of a TV. You see, what would it look like for you to live your life in a posture of savoring? What would that look like? Well, once again, we can look to Jesus for an answer. Because Jesus did not only demonstrate this in his miracles, he also lived it throughout his ministry. Look back at our text here in Luke chapter 7 and verse 34. Jesus says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. Right? And, and he did this with all kinds of people. If you flip back just a couple of chapters, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls a tax collector to follow him. And later that night is feasting with him in a large crowd in his house. You see, this whole scene prompts many of the Pharisees to grumble about why Jesus would eat with such riffraff like tax collectors and sinners. And it's from this point on that they begin accusing him of being a glutton and a drunkard. But then, if you look at the verse right after our passage, Luke 7, verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. You see, so Jesus conducts his ministry with meals around tables. You know, my mom and I used to watch this TV show called 24, right? The premise of it is that the season has 24 episodes and each one lasts an hour and a season will end up covering a full day in real time. And you might think that that just sounds like the most boring idea ever, but the show is anything but boring. It's full of all sorts of action and intrigue, of political drama and espionage and all kinds of stuff. But throughout the show, my mom and I used to wonder if any of the characters ever stopped to eat, right? You never saw a scene like that because it was just so action-packed. And that seems like a really big plot hole if you're actually going to make this a, a you know, minute-for-minute minute representation of a day. That seems like a big plot hole, and it is. But it's a plot hole that the Gospels don't have. You see, Jesus is constantly eating with people, with all sorts of people. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. He also eats with Pharisees, Right? You see, Jesus knows that not only is food meant to be savored, but also time with people is meant to be savored. So it doesn't matter who he's with. When Jesus sits down to share a meal with someone, he's there. He is fully present and savoring each moment. You see, the sense of taste does not only take time, it also creates connection. And if that's true today, it was even more true in the ancient world. 
To share a meal with someone is not just a nice pleasantry. It is to be bonded together in some special way. It is an act of community and identity. And this is a theme that, that runs all throughout the Gospel of Luke. Right? Luke, more than any other of the Gospels, shows Jesus eating with people time and time again. And the theme of food continues into the second part of the story that Luke writes in the book of Acts. Right? In Acts chapter 6, there's this special group of leaders that is appointed to help distribute food because that's an essential part of the life of the church. And then, as we continue, as the gospel begins spreading to Gentiles, in chapter 10, Peter has a special dream about food that lets him know that it is okay for the Gentile people to be a part of the church, even though they have different diets than the Jews do. And then in chapter 15, we see a council of church leaders in Jerusalem send out a letter confirming that no, Gentiles don't need to become Jews to be saved. But also, in that same letter, they do ask them to restrain their diet a little bit so that it doesn't cause a guilty conscience for the Jews they might be eating with. You see, the question between Jews and Gentiles in the early church is, is it okay for us to eat together? And the resounding answer is yes. It's not only okay for you to eat together, it is necessary for you to eat together, to sit at the table with each other. That's why Paul opposes Peter, opposes Peter to his face for not eating eating with the Gentiles. You see, this thing about eating together, it's not just, you know, which table to sit at in the school cafeteria. This is about the identity of the church. It's about the identity of the people of God. And this identity is experienced in the breaking of bread, in the sharing of meals. It is experienced through the sense of taste. So we see Jesus sharing meals with all sorts of people. And in every case, he slows down enough to savor each moment that he shares with them. But Jesus also knew that taste is not all about food and drink. He, he knew that life runs deeper than that. After all, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus says, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus knows that we are not only to savor the goodness of food or the company of people, but also the word of God. This is a theme that runs throughout scripture as well. In Psalm 19, verse 10, the psalmist writes that the word of God is sweeter than honey, even than the drippings of the honeycomb. All right. In Psalm 1, we see that the truly happy person is the one who meditates on the word of God, which is literally the word for chewing on it. All right? The, the truly happy person is someone who chews on the word of God. 
And then in the Old Testament, the the prophets are depicted as those who have the word of God on their tongue, who speak the word of God from their mouths. And we see this when Ezekiel was called into his ministry as a prophet. He has a vision where God gives him a scroll and tells him to eat it. God says to him in Ezekiel chapter 3, Eat this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then Ezekiel responds, then I ate it. And in my mouth, it was as sweet as honey. There's a similar picture to this one in Revelation chapter 10 with the vision of eating a scroll. And again, it is described as sweet as honey. You see, the word of God is something to be chewed on and savored. And just like food, when we taste scripture, it is meant to enter us and become a part of us. This is that personal sense of taste. The word of God is sweet to the taste and it is good to the soul. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, this is all good and well, but I just don't experience the Bible that way, right? I mean, it's like that barista explaining all the subtle flavors of coffee and you take your sip and you just don't taste any of it, right? But but I want to remind you of that crucially important step when the barista had us rinse our mouths out with water. You see, you can't get those subtle tastes without first cleansing your palate. And the same is true of scripture. You see, sometimes we need to cleanse our spiritual palate in order to really savor the word of God. That's why whenever we practice dwelling in the word together, we begin with prayer and then a few moments of silence. Those moments are meant to be kind of a spiritual palate cleanser as we prepare to savor the word of God together. Maybe this is something you can practice this week. Take some time each day to pause in quiet and cleanse your spiritual palate. Then choose a portion of scripture to savor and reflect on. And as you savor and chew on scripture this week, let it enter your being and become a part of your life. You see, that coffee that I tried may have had notes of of nuts and chocolate in it, but the word of God has flavor notes that are sweeter than honey to the soul. Take time to savor it. This is a truth that Jesus knew and that Jesus lived. But finally, Jesus did not only know the spiritual taste of life. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says that Jesus also tasted death for everyone so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery by the fear of death. You see, in this season of Easter, 
We remember that Jesus tasted death. But he came out on the other side victorious. And because of this, we do not need to be afraid of death anymore. Nor do we need to keep on tasting that deadly flavor of our own sin and shame. He has set us free from that. You see, Jesus came to give us a new appetite that we might taste the things of God. And that is ultimately what we wait for. At the end of all of Scripture, we see a great wedding feast when the kingdom comes and when heaven and earth are finally made new. And at that feast, at the end of Revelation, we hear the invitation, come, let everyone who is thirsty come. So back to that question that we started with. What role did taste play in Jesus' life and ministry? Well, through his miracles, he showed us how to savor good food. In his ministry, he showed us how to savor being present to one another across the table. In his life, he showed us how to savor the word of God. And he even tasted death to deliver us from death that we might savor eternal life with him. And all of these themes, all of these things come together at the table of communion. It is at the table that we savor the good food of the bread and the cup. It is at the table that we savor the presence of Jesus and one another. It is at the table that we savor God's life-giving word. And it is at the table that we anticipate that great wedding feast when death will be no more. For every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember him until he comes again. So may we live our lives in a posture of savoring. May we savor the word of God. May we savor every moment. And in all of this, may we taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.